Hey everyone, uh, today's bonus content is an interview that Zach and I did with author Tal M. Klein. Uh, his sci-fi novel, The Punch Escrow, was released on July 25th, and when we spoke to him on July 8th, the film rights had already sold to Lionsgate. So, pretty cool interview we got to do. Uh, if you've found your way here because you are a Tal Klein fan, uh, welcome. We are very glad to have you, and we hope you enjoy the conversation. But you should know that this is not what our show is typically like. Uh, we do interview authors every once in a while, but primarily... We are a fantasy audio drama about three high school kids from modern-day Pennsylvania who are transported to a magical realm embroiled in civil war. So if that sounds cool to you, we encourage you to check out our main feed. Uh, do start at the beginning with The Prince of Jordan. It is all one continuous uh, serialized story, and we would love to have you give it a shot. Um, full disclosure, Tal's publisher, Inkshares, sent us free review copies of the Punch Escrow. They do that with their books from time to time, but we reached out to Tal about an interview because we did genuinely enjoy this book, and we haven't been compensated by Ink Shares in any other way. But since we do have a few copies of the book, we are going to be giving them away. Some will go to people who submitted questions for our upcoming Ask the Once in Future Nerd episode, just like you know we did last time. But if you want another chance to win a book, you can tweet about us and or Tal. Um, make sure you use both the hashtags TOAFN and Get Punched. Uh, that is hashtag TOAFN and hashtag Get Punched together. Uh, and we'll do like a raffle thing for people who, who post in those tags. Uh, speaking of Ask the Once in Future Nerd, if you haven't heard the news by now, we did hit our reach goal on Patreon. We are thrilled and flattered by that. And we want to thank you all so, so, so much. Uh, and that means that our next Ask the Once in Future Nerd will be a live video hangout. It's going to be on YouTube uh, this coming Tuesday, August 1st at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. I've posted the link already on all of our social media, but I will put it in the show notes of this episode as well. And then the audio from that stream will go up on the podcast feed probably the following Sunday, depending how long it takes to clean up the audio. Uh, okay, that's a lot of announcements, uh, but there's a lot of cool stuff going on right now. Uh, so without further ado, here is our conversation with Tal M. Klein. Hi everyone, Zach here with Christian, and today we're joined by a very special guest, author Tal M. Klein. Tal's first novel, The Punch Escrow, was the winner of the Geek and Sundry's Hard Science Novel Competition and is being published by our friends at Inkshares. The book officially releases on July 25th, and the film rights have been bought by Lionsgate, which is very exciting, so we're very lucky to have Tal here. Tal, welcome. I feel very lucky to be here. So, I guess to start out, give us like a quick synopsis of your book, um, as many or as few spoilers as you want to give our listeners. Sure. Uh, I think the easiest way to talk about it is, I think all of us have read science fiction or fantasy stories that have used teleportation as a trope. And I think the same amount of people have read science fiction and fantasy stories where cloning, somebody getting cloned, was also a trope. And so what I, what I always was curious about was number one 
you know, how did teleportation get started? Like, if if everybody knew how teleportation worked, I think almost everyone would agree nobody would step foot in a teleporter. So kind of like, who was, who was I was always curious about, like, Patient Zero and, and you know, how, how it took off and how it became popular and, and all that kind of stuff. And from a cloning perspective, I always felt that, and, and this is not, universally the case but i feel like a lot of times whenever we've got cloning or duplicates the duplicates or clones are always very two-dimensional and almost expendable and i wanted to write a story where in many ways the clone was as interesting um, if not more interesting than the protagonist and and so you know the punch escrow is a story that's set in uh the 22nd century 2147 to be exact and it's about a man he's kind of like a very much an average guy in the 22nd century at a time where teleportation is sort of the in vogue mode of transportation and something goes wrong and he uh while he's teleporting and, and he becomes duplicated and it kind of follows him through a, a series of things that happen uh, to him and his clone, and it also kind of, you know, he's a, he's a man in a, in a in a fractured relationship with his wife, and uh, both he and his clone are in a sort of weird, bizarre love triangle uh, with their wife, and it's, it's just a it's a very fun story, and it's very cinematic. It's definitely a lot of fun reading it, and it's sort of a an action adventure. Joel, the main character, is trying to find his wife, and everyone else is trying to find him. As is very enjoyable. So this book was the winner of the Geek and Sundry novel competition, and yeah, I'm I'm a big fan of Geek and Sundry. I watch a lot of their web shows. Um, how did you find the Geek and Sundry competition? Tell us a little bit more about that. So I'm I'm just like you. Uh, I'm a huge Geek and Sundry and uh, Nerdist fan. Uh, do you watch just, Critical Role by any chance? Well, uh, not only do I watch it, you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't say that I'm probably like you know the, in the upper echelon of critters, but <laughs> let's just say that I don't know if you guys heard, but you know Matt Mercer is doing the audiobook. Oh really? Yeah. That's amazing. Be, I had not heard that's that. Awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, and. Um, you know, it took a little while. You know, one of the things that was really exciting to me about the whole Geek and Sundry thing. So, so a little bit. If, if we rewind the clock a little bit, I, when I first wrote this book, I had gotten a publication offer from a very well reputed publisher, and I'm not your typical author in that I've got a day job and a family. I'm I'm 40, so I'm kind of on in years, and so I wasn't looking to kind of make it. I was looking to to write my story and get it into the, the hands of people like me who, who loved stories like Ready Player One, you know, like The Martians, you know, all that kind of stuff. And that crowd was always kind of the geek and sundry and, and nerdist crowd. Like, these are the kinds of people that I would hang out with, that I have conversations with, I'm part of the community. And uh, when I saw the contest pop up, I literally ripped up my contract and, and uh, so to the chagrin of... All of my friends and and my even my my agent fired me. He flipped out so much that I would do that. And I was like, I think I can win this contest. And I think you know the, the thing about the Geek and Sundry contest is it puts me in direct line with the people who I'm writing the book for. And it's uh, it's a unique opportunity. I, I don't know. It, it, it came at exactly the right time. And um, I, I I really felt like if I made my case strongly and I. I I took my case directly to the community and, and was passionate enough about it, then then they would support me, and, and they did. 
And they did, and that's great. Congratulations again. Um, yeah, that's awesome. That is a, a very brave decision to make, and I'm really glad it, it worked out. That's that's awesome. Um, might I ask, what is uh, what is your day job, just out of curiosity? Sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm a chief marketing officer for a company called Lakeside Software. So, like, yeah, a boring 40-year-old who lives in the suburbs, <laughs> you know, with two kids, you know. Uh, I mean, it, it's – I've always been – look, I've been a huge fan of sci-fi I, I you know, and fantasy. I've, you know, I've, I've role-played my entire life, uh, mm-hmm. less so now that I've got kids. But, you know, I've got uh, – you know, my character is a dwarf. Um, uh, his nice. name is Iron, is Iron Forge Blade Shaper. It's a good dwarf um, name. Yeah, and he's got uh, he's got a sword that he affectionately calls Axe. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Um, and uh, yeah, so and he's a, he's got a charisma of four, <laughs> natural <laughs> charisma of four. So he's not a very charismatic dwarf. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, you know, it, it's it's like I've always loved sci-fi. I've always loved fantasy. You know, the way the book came about was really just you know having read books like the martian like ready player one off to be the wizard um you know john dies at the end i'm huge john dies fan well did you notice like there's a certain voice that emerges in all these books and it's a very modern it's very colloquial it it it, Mm -hmm. don't those novels don't read literary they don't feel like they're they're talking above you right they feel like they're talking to you and, and you know, that's something I've always loved. Uh, my favorite—I I, I could never put my finger on it until, like, these books kind of came in close proximity to each other. Uh, I don't know if you've—but like, you know, Ready Player One, The Martian, John dies at the end, um, Off to Be the Wizard. There's like a bunch of them that all kind of came out, and at the sort of periphery of it, you've even got things like Wool, uh, Red Rising, which is a little bit more literary, but also kind of, you know. I don't know if you guys are big Red Rising fans, but it's also kind of it, it, it speaks to the reader, and you don't you don't feel like you've got to have a dictionary nearby mm-hmm. in order to to understand it and enjoy it, and you don't feel like uh, it, you don't feel stupid for not understanding some of the things that are going on, you know, and um, and especially with things like The Martian, that you know, I'm a big I've got two daughters, and and I'm I'm a big advocate of STEM, you mm-hmm. know, and, and I mm-hmm. and I I love the idea of of you know, my my daughter, she's seven and she loves The Martian. Like she thinks it's like the greatest movie ever. And um, I, I just I think that uh, I wanted to write a book that would sort of uh, you know get my kids excited when they were older, get them excited about STEM and and um, get people excited about uh, science in general. And, and the physicist that I worked on uh, the book with. Uh, he like his favorite his the, the thing that got him into physics are movies like Weird Science and Real Genius you know like movies that combine humor and science so that was kind of my goal in writing I wanted to, I wanted to stick to the science uh, as robustly as I could while still making it kind of a a, a fun techno thriller mm, sure. so so you had a physicist who you worked with to write this. Oh yeah, I had um, the the published version of the book, the one that's going to be in stores, has an interview at the end with my buddy Joe Santoro, who, who's uh, he actually like is a nuclear physicist and and he, he actually works at a cancer hospital, and he uses physics to cure cancer. You know, <laughs> it's pretty cool. Oh, wow, that's awesome. Yeah, or to treat cancer, rather you would say. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and, and I think that um, 
it, he was really useful. I've, I've had, um, you know, I have friends who work at Oxytech, which is a company that's actually using uh, genetic modification to help uh, get rid of the world, you know, rid of the world of the Zika virus. So there's a lot of uh, a lot of people who I've leaned on uh, in, in writing this book to try to keep the scientific accuracy as close to uh, reality as possible, while also obviously predicting some bombastic things that may or, that that would exist in the future. Sure. Um, my day job is in science as well, actually, so I find that super fascinating. I actually, um, when I read The Martian, I couldn't help myself. I checked his math on everything because I'm a nerd. <laughs> well, you know, he published it serially, so so as he would publish things up, people like JPL would would mm. correct him on stuff. And so, like, there's there's a lot of corrections that happened as he was publishing the book, and that was actually one of my favorite things about The Martian is, is you know— um, I was reading it as he was publishing it serially, and it was fun to see him. You know, you know, a lot of times when you when people do that, they they kind of get trolled by the the literary and scientific community. But everybody there was like super excited about his book, and everyone from NASA was like correcting his math and and his bio, you know his uh, you know biology and um, botany and all that kind of stuff. So it was just really, it was really fun to watch that 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 novel kind of emerge as as a sort of crowd science developed project. Yeah, that's amazing. It's good that it went the helpful feedback way, because sometimes, especially on the internet, things can go very sharply the other way. Oh my gosh, I just had Tor. Uh, so Tor.com just published like a, uh, a chapter from my book, and somebody right away in the, in the comments was like, oh dear, uh, the author should know that you know only female mosquitoes eat blood and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, dude, <laughs> I'm like, seriously? Like, I mean, obviously I appreciate the snark because there's a lot of snark in the book. So I'm not like upset about it, but I'm like, give me, give me at least the slightest benefit of the doubt that I will have done a little bit of research. On the, I mean, even the, the mosquitoes thing, like that's not even, that's not even something I would have to research. <laughs> you know what I mean, like, yeah. So yeah, I, I know that female mosquitoes are the ones that eat blood. Yes. Thank you very much for that information it's like you know i mean it's just it's really funny so to get tested that way and and uh my publisher was kind of laughing at me because you know i respond he's like he's like first of all he's like never read the comments right but i was like you know i i appreciated the candor of the comment and i actually appreciate the snarkiness of it because i'm on twitter and i you know i'm constantly you know aggressively pursuing things on twitter making fun of people for for things like that so it's okay uh so i just you know but it, it is it is interesting it's gonna be when this book is out in the wild I cannot wait to find out, you know, how this plays out, you know, with the scientific community. That that should be fun to see, I guess. Yeah. I'd be a little terrified, but if you're <laughs> looking forward to it, that's good. <laughs> yeah, I like so, I like a good uh, I like a good dust up. <laughs> um, yeah. For, so, might I ask also uh, for the Lionsgate uh, sale? Did you do you have a new agent now, or did your your previous agent take you back after the contract tearing up? How did how did that go? Oh my gosh! I can't even tell you. Everybody thought I was crazy. Sure. I mean, everybody thought I was crazy. You know, when you're put this much, I guess. I guess part of this is that I used to be. You know, I've, I've done a lot of music. I've got like you know five albums to my name, and and I've sort of been through every facet of the music industry. So I know what happens to first-time artists, mm -hmm. and. Mm -hmm. Um, and I wasn't like angry. It was like it's a very reputable pu publisher, and they gave me a great, what well, would would have been a great deal for a first time author. Mm -hmm. um, but I, you know, the thing that I asked them, and this is an honest to goodness conversation I had with with them. I said, look, the the audience that I'm writing this book for are, you know, people on 
like Geek and Sundry and Nerdist. Like these are the words that came out of my mouth before the Geek and Sundry contest even started. Mm-hmm. And um, and I, you know, and I said, how are you guys going to get this book to that community? And they're like, well, you know, we've got this marketing plan, and we'll do end caps. And I'm like, that's those people don't, like, you know, they barely step foot in a bookstore. It's like, I, you know, so there's this, mm-hmm. this whole this whole process of like. I just felt like they were so uh, out of context with who I was writing the book for that I needed to take things into my own hands. And, and um, I'd crowdfunded a book before. I, my daughter, actually, when she was very young, she wrote like a book called I'm a Bunch of Dinosaurs, which is like uh, – <laughs> um, it was actually a really, a really good success on Kickstarter. But I kind of – I said, look, I could do this myself, and I didn't really have an alternative. I was like, you know, I can't – I need to get this you know, developmentally edited, copy edited, proofread. There's like so much stuff that went into this book that I knew I needed to go through some kind of publishing scenario. I didn't think I could kickstart the book. Uh, and so when this, the Geek and Sundry contest and the Inkshares thing happen, you know, every so often the universe just, you know, gives you a sort of omen you can't possibly deny. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I feel that way about like, I don't know, when I met my wife, you know, we, we both, on our first date, we both held our chopsticks upside down. There's <laughs> like, like, like these weird moments where the universe just gives, you know, where the universe just gives you a spontaneous, very short window in, in which you get to see the source code. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, oh, okay, that's what I'm supposed to do, right? And so I, I, just, I just sort of went for it, you know, and, and I, uh, I haven't really looked back. And so then Inkshares, once you were working with them, they provided a lot of that copy editing and stuff that you were talking about? Oh, yeah. And and actually, what's amazing about Inkshares uh, that I learned later uh, after the fact is they actually um, – they, they treat books a little bit differently because they see books as the nucleus of, of uh, what they call story product. And what they mean by that is – your book is not just a book. It's also, you know, uh, how do we convert this into a TV show or uh, mm. a movie or whatever? And so, like, the developmental editors that they assign you are, like, people who have, you know, masters of fine arts and, and screenwriting. Like, my, my developmental editor was Matt Harry, and he, I mean, he's got, you know, tens of, of options, screenplays underneath his belt. He teaches a, master, he teaches a fine arts uh, screenwriting class. You know, uh, at a university. So, um, it was really profound to learn uh, to to get to to really get that that experience of of now you've got like a really you've got a great book with a great premise. You know, how do you really take it to the next level of of making it super cinematic and appealing to the people who are making movies and stuff like that? Yeah, that's great. And full disclosure to our audience, I guess Inkshares was the the people who connected you and us. And so I think it's great. Inkshares reached out to, you know, fantasy podcasts like us. So they're really have that, that same ideal that you have trying to get, you know, to the critters of the world, trying to get your book to the right hands. So that's really awesome of them. It, it is. And, and honestly, I'm telling you, they're such a great team and, and I love working with them. You know, they've been, they're so invested in the project. I mean, I know, yeah, I was getting emails from them today. So they like the working weekends on my book. You know, it's like this is some really cool stuff that you wouldn't get in a sort of large publisher who's doing, you know, who, who, who to whom you're sort of like a number. You know what I mean? And um, it, you know, there's pluses and minus to it. I think some people just want to write a book and get it published and, and let everybody else do, you know, do the heavy lifting. I, I like doing this kind of stuff. 
um, you know, this kind, these kinds of conversations are, are, are what inspires me. I mean, I love talking to people about science, science fiction, fantasy. I, I love talking about other books, movies, you know, stuff like that. So to me, that's, that's part and parcel with, with getting the story out about, you know, my book is, is 90% of the stuff that I talk about is, has nothing to do with my book and just the, the general world of, of science fiction and fantasy. Mm-hmm. I can actually use that as a pretty nice segue to start talking about that world a little bit. Um, so our podcast is a fantasy fiction podcast, and one of the things that we really enjoy is using sort of these crazy, seemingly unrealistic situations to really to talk about the real world. And I think there's a lot of cool, cool facets of that in Punch Escrow, but I wonder if you have any specific ones you'd like to talk about. My most my favorite one, how quickly everyone took up teleportation. Like, in in your world, <laughs> it's not a huge spoiler, but everyone does it pretty much right. without really thought or regard. And especially nowadays with how quickly people really do quickly pick up the tech without really thinking about it. Right. Well, you know, what you said was is very profound. Um, I would say that uh, it's a combination of things. Uh, the first is... Uh, I recently moved from uh, Northern California to Detroit, um, and one of the things that drove me crazy in Northern California was was the, the commute traffic. I would probably sell my soul to the devil for like <laughs> for forty five minutes of less commute per day, you know, <laughs> like. And so, you know, given the option of teleportation, um, especially if, if I wasn't like patient one or even patient a hundred, like let's say like hundreds of thousands of people were doing it. I'd probably just go for it. I mean, I, I don't know that I'd, a- I'd ask too many questions about about it. Um, and and I think that you ask anybody who's stuck in traffic the same question, they'd probably tell you absolutely. You know what I mean? Like, it, it, traffic just stinks. You know, it's a it's a terrible thing. So, uh, or, that's, or that's on, a, on a derailed A train for all the New Yorkers listening. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I, I lived in New York for a long time for sure. A, a derailed A train. I, I used to live on Sixth and Spring, so I, there's a uh, oh boy. You know, especially when it's in the summer and you're stuck and the humidity and the stink and it's just awful. We are yeah. delayed because so, of train traffic ahead of us. Yeah. <laughs> so that's number one. Uh, number two is. Let's talk about something that, like, that was obviously a giant deceit that everybody fell fell for, like Theranos. Do you guys know Theranos? Mm, yeah, the, so, that was the tech company that turned out to be a fraud, basically with the blood testing. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. but you know, I mean, up until the point where Wall Street Journal said it was a fraud, everyone was like, "This is the greatest thing ever," and then they couldn't wait to do it. You know, me, me included. Like, I was like, oh, great. I don't have to, like, I need to get a blood test. I don't have to get, like, that needle in my arm. We just pinprick and I'm done. Sign me up. Right? Yeah. Yeah, just um, just for our audience, in case you didn't hear it, the very quick Bark Notes version was this company was claiming that they could do, like, a quick, cheap blood test to screen for all sorts of different diseases and conditions. And it turned out that they were basically fabricating all their data and collecting your blood and then sending it out to traditional, already yeah. established blood test places. <laughs> But that that was the best like, case scenario. That was the best case scenario. The worst case scenario, they were just making up making up stuff. Yeah. And they raised like a billion dollars or something, like crazy startup money, and it turned out to be totally falsified. Yep. So not only did they 
make everybody believe in it. Like they had a, like they had clinics inside of Walgreens, and they had like John McCain on their board. You know, they had like all these people. I mean, this is a this was parading around as a very legitimate company, and everybody was just like, oh, okay, I guess, I guess we've disrupted blood testing. <laughs> like nobody, you know. And so, so with teleportation, like I feel like everybody, when you've got something that's so universally desired. Um, as long as you wrap the right, right kind of marketing around it, I think people are willing to sign up for suspension of disbelief, especially if, you know, if you'd have to attack it. Do you guys know the movie um, Wag the Dog? I'm aware of it. I've never seen it, and I should. Well, the whole idea of Wag the Dog is... They fabricate a war, right? Yeah, well, yeah, they fabricate yeah a war and then a, a war hero and all this kind of stuff to get this guy elected, right? You know, all you've got to do is create a compelling enough narrative that is convincing enough and as long as what's at the end of that narrative is something desirable that people want anyway they just you know they don't want to think about what it's like sausage nobody wants to know how sausage is made we just like to eat it right mm-hmm. yeah i mean that's that's how technology is I and mean, we don't you know like we we know google is spying on us we don't really want to know why or how because it's the service is useful you know it's like it is what it is. It's like it, you know, some people might say that sounds very dystopian. To me, I'm like, it's you know, it's it's utilitarian. We get Google for free, and Exchange it gets a bunch of stuff on it about us. You know, like I think that. Um, so anyway, long story short, without getting uh, too deep into this tangent, I think that the quick adoption of teleportation came by from two things. One is, you know, they, they did have a war, and and I think I think uh, society was in a sort of recovering state, and they wanted to believe in innovation and and. Um, you know, moving forward, is, um, and I think teleportation is a very cool advancement for society to rally around. Um, the other is that there was, you know, teleportation did have a checkered past, and the idea that this company would come along and say, we fixed the bug, we fixed the glitch, I mean, that's another thing that makes people, oh, okay, they fixed it, now it's safe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, yeah. So, uh, so it's kind of like um, one of my one of my friends is, is a very picky reader, and, he, and uh, he's like nobody would ever step into a teleporter. And I said, you know, there's, I'll bet you there's a lot of things that somebody from the 19th century might never agree to do that we do every single day, like get on a plane, for example. Mm-hmm. Right. You know? When they invented the car, didn't people think that humans could not physically go above like 30 miles per hour? That we just uh, like, that was the oh, that was the trains, yeah. That was yeah. the trains, yeah. Yeah, they said if you if the human body, the human body, there's two, there was two schools of thought. Both like I think one was from Oxford and the other one was like from Princeton. Like one school of thought was that the friction of the uh, air molecules against the human body at 50 kilometers per hour would would basically you know liquefy the human body because <laughs> uh, you know like, like friction would generate heat. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, right. The other one, the other school of thought was that the um, the velocity uh, would would make our organs come out through our various orifices. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, <laughs> so there you have it. I mean, I, I think it's really funny. I mean, it, it's funny, but it, it, you get where they're coming from. They're trying to be prudent, and they're trying to, you know, it, we're we're a society that that favors uh, I told you so-ism. You know what I mean? So it, it's like somebody wanted to be the prudent person and say, don't get on that train. You know, but uh, we did because, right. you know, at the end of the day, it's more convenient. Yeah. And I could definitely right. see that if teleportation 
were to come along in my lifetime, maybe now after reading your book, I'd be a little more skeptical, but I would sign <laughs> on instantly. Uh, you know, people ask me about that all the time. Like, is this a warning letter? And actually, like, you know, I was just talking to a quantum physicist uh, earlier today about uh, this panel that I'm doing at Comic-Con. And he's like, it's really funny the way you presented it in your book, as, as a matter of fact, because he's like, that's exactly how it would have to happen. Like, people would just have to be like, oh, okay, it's fine. You know, like, the, the, mm -hmm. there would have to be an anthropological right. catalyst. Uh, and at the end of the day, it's just convenience. Like, it, you know, it, convenience drives a lot of our decision-making in life. Yeah, maybe maybe you need one celebrity to hop on first. <laughs> I love it. Yep, exactly. That works for me. Um, something that you said, uh, well, tell you've said a couple things that kind of indicate a, some, some kinship between the thought processes of our respective projects but one of the things you said before was that was really interesting to me was that you kind of started from the place of tropes that you had encountered before and wanted to to pick apart um and that's kind of very much um what what we did um and i kind of wanted to get get your thoughts get you to talk a little bit about um working with tropes and making them feel fresh and about you know how you introduce the trope while still telegraphing a little bit that it's not going to be the same thing that people have read a million times before so i just kind of wanted to hear your your thoughts on that and how you approached it okay i think i utterly failed on the second part because there's no way to capture in a synopsis oh you know like if you read my if you read the synopsis of the punch escrow Mm -hmm. um, and you're a cynical person, you're going to think something like The Sixth Day or like The Prestige Glitch or right. like the Star Trek episode Second Chances. You know, there's just like, like oh, it's been done. It's right. like, I, I hear that all the time. And I'm like, okay, I, you know, like the only thing I ever ask is like, you know, give me the benefit of the doubt that I've, I've done that research. But okay, I, I get it because it's very hard to describe how this is different without giving away, right? without, without, without spoilers. Yeah, definitely um, right. something we've struggled with. So what I usually say is, look, uh, you know, the main issue with tropes, the only time that teleport, the, the, the inception of teleportation has truly been explored is the fly. Like the first teleportation ever. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I'm, I'm sure there's some other book, there's some other, you know, books that reference it. But, you know, and, and in the fly, he, they did a great job of capturing the inception of teleportation, but then turned it into you know, something horrible happens, right? Which is good, because that also happens in the Punchesco, right? And, but they, they take it in a very, very different direction, which is like, you know, then the guy becomes a fly. Right. You know what I mean? <laughs> I guess the, the, uh, to answer the first part of your question, because the second part of your question, I think you just have to accept that some people will accept, will, it doesn't, you can't, in a synopsis, get away from people trying to box you into, into a trope. Right. I fought it for a long time, and maybe somebody out there can do a better job. But I think that uh, that's a losing proposition for me. I mean, if, if somebody can do it with my book, I, I will substitute my synopsis for theirs in a, in a heartbeat. Mm -hmm. um, I wrote, I, I think I wrote like 70 versions of my synopsis and then <laughs> gave up on it. And then my publisher wrote yep. like 30 <laughs> versions of it. And they get, you know, it's like at some point, like, I don't even know who wrote the current version of the synopsis that exists on Amazon. <laughs> like, I've just given up on it. Um, to, your first question is a lot more interesting because I agree with you. I, I think that I'm a big fan 
it's a trope in in itself, but I'm a big fan of of origin stories because origin stories force you to really think about how the trope originated, and and that's a huge opportunity for almost any trope. Very few tropes have really effective origin stories. A lot of them are just used as as MacGuffins. Yeah, you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that you take any trope out there and you say like this is patient zero of this trope and you've got a really interesting, I mean, and, and they do that. That's, those are the most effective versions of that. Uh, the other thing is that, you know, you also look at history. Like I, I'm, I've always been a hard sci-fi fan and uh, Larry Niven or Niven, I don't pronounce his last name, but um, you know, he wrote this really long essay about teleportation, kind of dissecting every, every facet that teleportation might take, including like, including uh, uh, psychic teleportation, <laughs> You know, just crazy stuff, right? And and his conclusion was the biggest problem with teleportation is not how it happens, but how society digests it. And to mm-hmm. me, that was the aha moment. Like, I think that like mm-hmm. attacking this thing from an anthropological perspective was probably the most fun because then you have this idea of the wool being over people's eyes and not in a dystopic fashion because, like, I don't think you would call international transport an evil corporation. Um, they're capitalist. But international transport, for those who haven't read the book, is, is the company that that kind of owns teleportation in the book. And I don't—they're not evil. They're not like this evil corporation. You know, they would tell everybody how teleportation worked if they thought they could handle it. But the reality of the situation is, it's a very safe and effective form of transportation. It's safer than flying. It's safer than driving, and it's profitable. So, you know, uh, I think that the Joel incident, and and, it, and if you think about, you know, the Joel incident and how. You know the people at international transport try to deal with it. It's not like they're sitting there menacing evil masterminds, kind of giggling away in the corner. They're like, okay, well, let's take a very logical approach on how to solve this problem, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that uh, so. I mean, they so, do still have their own. Not to go too spoilery, but they have their own interests at heart more than his to some extent. Oh, for sure, for sure. But all, but let's just say it's not entirely like. They're, the solution that they propose on paper makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Um, especially, uh, it's like so hard to talk about it without spoilers. But you know, the way the way they come up with the solution is is, is actually clever and, and fairly painless. I mean, unless you're Joel, uh, you know. And I think um, I think that they're. And I like the idea that they propose it to first to him, and then they propose it to his wife when he's when he refuses. You know what I mean? Like. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so I think that you know the human element of uh, the human element is probably what makes tropes most interesting. I think if you could make a, if you could take a trope and really get into the sympathies associated mm-hmm. with that trope, like why you know in the case of clones, like you got like you know the story like remember the island? I don't know if you guys saw the island, but or read the island. Um, but this idea of like you know, human clones being grown for body parts. Yeah, then the clones, like, form, like, a micro-society, and they're, like, you know, they, they run away from the island of the clones kind of thing, you know? So it's, like, supposed to be, like, this This island is perfect, all the clones are, like, you know, it's ideal society, but the, their deep, dark secret is, like, as the person for whom that person is the clone of needs, like, a new heart or whatever, you know, that clone just <laughs> gets taken out, and so it's, like, utopia, except you're, you're basically just a, an organ farm. Um... 
That sounds really interesting. Yeah, but, but you know the part the part about it that's annoying is that is that they make the clones so two dimensional, like, and you almost feel like they're expendable. You know, like you don't want. I don't think you'd want you want the clone to live in a utopia or whatever. I think that uh, it's a lot more interesting when the clone is itself himself or herself starts to develop, you know, a, a compelling and unique personality that is a fork of the personality of the of the person that they were they they became a duplicate of. Right. Um, and I was about to say, again, I try to avoid spoilers, but that was, I think, a big turning point in the punch escrow when Joel 2 started to diverge a bit. And that really did flesh out Joel 2 as, a, as you said, his own three-dimensional character. Yeah, and, and, and that was a really important... I mean, I worked a, really hard on that. And, and in fact, the fact that, they, that you know, their wife was not sure... Like I think if you put, in fact they do. They put a, a kind of a gun to their, her head to make her choose, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and she's incapable of it because she really loves both of them in different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it is like a sort of quintessential bizarre love triangle. Um, it, and so, I think that is where you take the trope to the next level. It's like when you can elevate this notion of, of uh, a duplicate. You know, teleported duplicate, and you say that duplicate is as much of a protagonist in the book as the actual protagonist. I think that's mm-hmm. when you create that. That's when you sort of elevate that idea. Uh, and I think by throwing a love story into it, you you keep it grounded because it, you know, yes, it's a it's a techno thriller, and you know, there's all this really cool science stuff. But at the heart of it, the Punchesco is a love story, you know, and that's it, it's it's a it's a weird love story. Um, <laughs> but you know, at the end, you know, without getting to spoilers, at the end there's a real quandary. I mean, you're not really sure that it's the best ending. <laughs> there's so much yeah. more we could talk about, but I'm sure you have things you need to do in your life. No, it's, I, I, no. So for me, I mean, look, I think ultimately at the end of the day, I mean, you guys, the the thing I wanted to write this book for. You know, just just to really get it at a high level, because there's a lot of really interesting concepts that are explored here about the future, and I don't necessarily think that. I mean, I definitely don't think all of them are right. But what I'm hoping is that the ideas presented in the book, and the reason I went into such depth in, into studying the science and and trying to be as as hard in the science part as possible, mm-hmm. well, uh, is to to get people excited about the fact that the technology. It is something we could be optimistic about. I, I feel so many people are are worried about you know automation and artificial intelligence and robots and 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 stuff like that. Like you know, and I think as we enter the next age, whatever it is, whether it's the age of automation, the age of you know artificial intelligence, um, the age of robotics, um, you know, we will continue to thrive. It's just that everything will change. And the Luddites never win. They just are sort of like a speed bump. And they're, they're, they're kind of a healthy speed bump because it's important to be, to be prudent. But, you know, we should be optimistic about technology. And, and, you know, obviously we should be thinking about, you know, how can we implement technology in, in the most useful way to society, one that provides the most amount of good for as many people as possible. But I think this whole idea of protectivism and, and trying to, to bring back the good old days, you know, make things great again, 
rather than make things great, we continue to be, continue to have things uh, be great and to increase the greatness of things as they are. Uh, I think that's the that's the sort of attitude we need to take, and and it, that requires active participation and involvement, not um, not meandering. Mm-hmm. I definitely agree, and I think that's one of the most um, exciting parts about science fiction is that it is perpetually looking forward, and you're really always exercising your imagination of not how things are now, but how they could be and what we could do better. And that's what I want. I mean, look, the future <laughs> in the punch escrow is uh, not a utopia, but it is really cool and exciting. Yes, bad things happen in it, but it's you know it's a world I would happily live in. You know, and mm-hmm. I'm excited about it. And so, um, yeah, hopefully, what, what I hope is it you know inspires others, it makes them smile, uh, and hopefully makes people optimistic. That's what I really wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Well, that's great. Thank you so much for your time. We know that you have your children to get back to, so we really <laughs> appreciate it. Yeah, thank do you so much, Cal. Do you have any last plug right uh, now or not at the moment? Um, you know, the, the thing that I would love is uh, I'm a huge fan of uh, uh, indie bookstores. Um, and I'm doing a 12-city uh, indie bookstore tour starting on the 25th when the book uh, – the 25th of July when the book comes out. And so if people go to facebook.com slash thepunchescrow, um, there's a list of all the cities that I'll be in and the dates that I'll be there. And I'd love to see you. I'm going to do uh, readings and um, signings. We'll be doing giveaways. You know, I'd love to see you. And uh, if, if there are any questions that you have, you know, I'd like to keep the, to make those an open forum and an opportunity for us to have uh, a dialogue um, as much as possible. And I'll be doing, um, later in August, uh, I'll also be doing an, uh, an AMA on slash r slash fantasy. Oh, great. Um, that's awesome. And so it's uh, facebook.com slash the, uh, the punch escrow. Yes. For the, uh, the locations of the, of the stores you'll be in. Um, that's awesome. The book is out on July 25th. Um, yep. and we will be doing uh, a couple, a couple giveaways around that time as well. We have a couple copies we can, we can give to some of our fans. Awesome. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Tal. This was an excellent conversation. We really appreciate your time. And of course, yeah. I mean, this is a lot of fun. Awesome. And to our fans, look out July 25th for the Punch Escrow. And that was our conversation with Tal M. Klein. The Punch Escrow is available now wherever you get books. Uh, support indie bookstores if you can. And if you want a chance to win a free copy, tweet something using the hashtags TOAFN and Get Punched. And I hope to see you all on our live stream on Tuesday night. All right. Be well.